0: Hey, this is Dave. Just a few things before we dive into the next episode. Right off the top, I'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the Busker Hall of Fame family. I got this message out of the blue from Nick Broad at the Busking Project asking if they could sponsor an episode. He asked for it to be released, so it coincided with the December 4th launch of their new smartphone app, Busk. Now, I've known about The Busking Project for almost as long as I've been putting out these podcasts, and I'll admit that at first I was a little skeptical about an organization for buskers created by a guy who, as far as I could tell, had never done a busking show in his life. But Nick continues to impress me with his ongoing advocacy for street theater because he's so often the guy standing up in front of The Suits to talk about how busking stimulates the vitality of urban spaces. The Busking Project's new app, Busk, Seems like one of the most progressive attempts to date to merge the benefits of social media, discoverability, and cashless payments all into one smartphone solution. Is this the future of busking? I have no idea. But change does seem inevitable as technology transforms the way that humanity relates to money. And it seems there are two options when faced with a scenario like this resist or evolve. What you do is up to you. All right, let's get to the podcast.
1: So it just became green, Peter Panic. A lot of green and trying to have, you know, dressed like Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. Right. And I realized I'm not a proper gentleman. Like with the monocle and the top hat and the very adult, like the the gentleman. Like I really love the English gents because they're they're class. They're just class all the way through. And Mm -hmm. I'm looking at them and I'm looking at me and I'm not. (laughs) I mean, I'm just not. I feel
2: the same way when I put a suit on. I still feel like a punk.
1: Yeah. You know, again, some of my heroes from literature someone like Huck Finn or something like that, you know, James Berry, the guy that wrote Peter Penn called Huck Finn the greatest boy. The greatest boy in literature. In certain cultures if you call someone a boy, certain neighborhoods you get punched in the face. Right. If you say, Boy, come here. Yeah. But I sort of self identify as a boy. So I do see myself as intentionally trying to be a child. I can't tie a tie. Yeah. I don't know how to tie one.
0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. In the last few episodes, I've been encouraging you to go and check out the episode notes for each release so you can enjoy the bonus content that we put together. Now, I'll admit, I'm as guilty as the next guy about listening to a great podcast and then never, ever visiting the show's website, but the content that we take the time to post is really good, so I thought I'd do something a little bit different this time around and actually share something from the notes section because I feel it's the perfect setup for the piece you're about to hear. So here we go. Once upon a time, we'll call it 1979, there was a 12-year-old boy who lived in a house on the edge of the woods in a New Jersey suburb. There was a big old ash tree in the front yard that he had been forbidden to climb. There were lots of other trees out there, climb any one you want, he was told, just not that one. As if climbing that particular tree would be like committing the original sin from the Bible. Of course, the little boy, armed with 100 feet of cotton clothesline, did it anyway. Why? Because it was there. And because the devil made him do it. This story isn't really related to performing, but Peter Panik has used it as a metaphor his entire performance career. So why does it work as a metaphor? Well, when Peter was 12, two years before he learned how to juggle three tennis balls, he took a good, hard look at that tree in the front yard and decided to climb it. Like a fool, he talked about doing it, and the sane, responsible adults of the world tried to dissuade him by going on and on about all the bad things that could happen, much like certain people have a difficult time believing that there might be a benefit to a career in show business. After all, the adults chided, what possible upside was there to climbing that stupid tree? Well, it had never been done before, and to 12-year-old Peter McLaughlin, it just looked like Mount Everest. And it was then and there that he determined that his life would always be a choice between death and glory. And in the glory that's followed, there have been some incredible stories from the pitch.
2: (laughs) All right, crack your beer. This will be the... Oh, you want to get the sound of it? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's a Canadian, too. I always go for the local. You nice. Know, I don't get homesick. Oh, this man. is
2: just for a sound effect. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> it's the sound of Peter Panic drinking a Molson Canadian.
1: Yeah.
2: Alright, so we're sitting here with Peter Panic. We're in uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta. And it is the 13th of July, 2015. So, uh, first thing, uh, how did you get started performing?
1: I learned how to juggle when I was 14 from the uh, Complete Clutz book.
2: Oh, yeah?
1: Who wrote that? Uh, it's a guy named Cassidy, I think. There's a whole series now, uh, yo-yoing for the Complete Klutz, probably. There's their one, and there's magic for the Complete Clutz, But the first one was juggling for the Complete Clutz, and it was just sort of like this cartoon book with, you know, how-to instructions. And all it did was led to you to learn how to do, like, a basic cascade. But I was a middle kid, and that's sort of my excuse still to this day, is, like... You know, my older brother got a PhD from Stanford and was an Eagle Scout, and every, and I just didn't want to be like him. But my younger brother learned how to juggle before I did.
2: Oh, yeah? Yeah,
1: he did, when he was maybe seven or eight. And that would have been a few years before I even learned how to do three. And I think wow, it, was wow. just, yeah, it was just a rainy Saturday. That book was still kicking around. The beanbags were long gone, but I just learned how to juggle. And I always said it's like a light bulb going off, like, right, like right. a flash of, like... I started showing it to my friends or my family, and it was a way for, you know, I was kind of a shy kid, and it was something, oh, I can do a trick. So
2: you started juggling in your teens, and how did it turn into performing?
1: Well, right away, I never really saw myself as like a hobby juggler. I saw myself as like an amateur juggler, like the way LeBron James was an amateur basketball player. I saw this as a career move, something to do. I mean, it's straightforward, just an escape from the dead-end world that I was born into. Right. And where was that? Uh, Middle-class suburbia in New, uh, in New Jersey. Jersey. Jersey Jersey which part of Jersey central Jersey sort of western suburbs of New York City sort right. of a white bread town well west of New York City like a bedroom community like people would ride the train into the city or. and what did your parents do like my father was an executive at AT&T right you know bell telephone and my mother was you know pretty straightforward housewife she would go to college and got a teaching certificate but she just basically got married and had five kids right and, Right. um no performers in your family? Not really, no. Um, I had a grandmother that was sort of a wild child when she was younger. She would have been a flapper, <laughs> like, a, like during the 20s. Right, and, right. And she married a guy that was a World War I flying ace, which is an, sounds impossible. Right, right. Um, so he was a pilot. They had one child together, and he died and was considered a hero and all that. But I'm pretty sure my grandmother was in the Mile High Club. Right. (laughs) And one of the first people. Yeah, so she's the one sort of eccentric, but not really any show business people at all. As a matter of fact, the opposite. My parents uh, don't care for show business. Right, right. Kind of. Um, Mm. Which, you know, to each his own. But it's like to me, it's like someone saying, I don't like chocolate. Right, right. It's like, come on, I don't like that dark bitter chocolate, but like some milk chocolate, white chocolate. We got all kinds. Yeah, yeah. they like
2: movies. They like comedy.
1: You know, my mother can't go to a movie. She got freaked out badly when she was young. Her father died, which is my grandfather. So, my grandmother had two, got married twice, and had her husband die. But after my grandfather died, my mother was, I don't know, like 12 or something. And some people, meaning well, took her to a Bambi, the movie. Oh, right, yeah. And Bambi, like, the father gets shot. Right. The mother's being chased by hunters. It's apparently really traumatic. Like, I guess it is a scary movie, but we didn't understand it as kids. We'd go see movies, whatever. My dad would go to movies. We'd go to movies. But my mother never would. and Traumatized. Yeah, and we thought it was a joke that she got so scared by Bambi that she could never go to another one and we're like, ah, ha, ha, But then it turns out that was actually the case. Yeah. And she is kind of like a fearful person. And to me, fear is like, can be contagious. It's dangerous Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like a lack of faith or someone that doesn't believe in you. And it's a scary thing to have that happen with someone like your mother. Your right, family, close, right, right, right. a close relationship, so... Yeah. So
2: you're out in Jersey, and you're juggling, and how do you start performing? Where's your first,
1: like, parties, or... Well, I was, like, I had to do all these things I didn't really want to do. I had to go to church every week, I had to go to school, I had to be a Boy Scout, which I didn't want to be. Right. Like, my older brother was, like, he wanted to be Eagle Scout. I was like, I don't want to do this at all. Right. But I had to. I realized that would have been some of my first performing experience, was, like, on a Boy Scout trip, we'd be out camping somewhere in some lodge or something, and there'd be another troop around... And they'd get together, and we'd build, like, a bonfire, and we would do skits. Yeah, yeah. Everyone that had, like, a little skit, or we'd get up and do, you know, sort of like the little rascals. Let's Mm -hmm. put on a show. Mm -hmm. Like, that would have been the beginning. And that was something that I, you know, I still get nervous before a show. Right. I look back then, I would have been probably, you know, shaky. But but I had. You did know, you just juggle, or did you just? I would juggle. Or? I was trying to do jokes. I mean, the guy that was around at the time was Michael Davis. Right. Michael Davis was just a big guy, the comedy juggler, eating an apple. So in my the early years, I was eating an apple. I would juggle with eggs. I had a bowling ball. I yeah. Got my hands on anything. Even before I knew of professional props, I was making my own torches. Right. You know, I made my own torches almost right away.
2: Yeah, yeah. And what did you dip them in?
1: Gasoline. I didn't know any better. <laughs> And I burned myself <laughs> the first time. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Is, I didn't know any better. And the first time I did it, I got a second-degree burn, which is oh, yeah. a little blister. Yeah, you but, need to be told that. Right. Someone but, has to tell you And that. someone did. When I finally yeah. bought real ones, they said, you're crazy. Use troco starter, you know, whatever. But, yeah. but at the time, it didn't matter because... And the other thing that, that, like, whatever middle child thing, like, it's if you start ignoring me, I'm just going to ramp it up. So, like, if the juggling... Is like, we're not amused. I'm like, what if I light them on fire? Right. You know, what if that, I do
2: five, right. seven? And right. that leads yeah. to
1: chainsaws. That leads yeah. to, you know. um <laughs> But that's was definitely like, I have that sort of logic. That's and When I'm was this? Like 70s? I graduated from high school in 84. Okay. When I was 17. And wow. by then, I'd already sort of like, I was the juggler in town. Right. I had right. a unicycle. I got my hands on a tall unicycle. I was trying to learn to do the mount. Um... I don't know, I've done some shows at church. Yeah, you're right. Because the church, Catholic church that I went to, there was a nun. I must have been practicing after church or something, showing off for kids. And she'd read this book, The Clown of God. Do you know this story? The, no. Tommy DePalo, he, he writes a children's book or a cartoon fable about the humble juggler that can juggle and do tricks for people and lives his whole life. And then when he gets old, he goes back to his hometown and there's a miracle. So she wanted to like read that story at church and have someone juggle. So I that was like kind of my first gig in front of like you know strangers or a lot of people. Right, right. So uh, as I'm graduating from high school, they put on like a variety show, a talent show. Right. At the end of the year, like they were not trying to teach these kids anymore. We're gonna have a big assembly. And I'd already done a gong show that was after school, so I'd already done some performing. Like a talent show? Yeah, like, they had a gong show earlier in the year that I was in that I did okay. And so someone approached me and said, do you want to do your act? Because we're trying to fill stage time. So I said, sure. And I'd been to a juggling convention by then, and I'd seen, like, I don't know, Michael Marlin do some silly jokes or... Yeah, you know, I
2: wanted to ask you, like, who I did saw you Robert see Nelson. early? Well, Robert saw, Nelson. Oh,
1: right. Yeah, saw Robert Nelson, and um, who else? I mean... You know, like Anthony Gatto was a hero as far as technique and all that, or Albert Lucas. I saw so for a while. You were I was, telling me the other day when you met him, like you said you were starstruck. I got really excited when I yeah. got to meet Anthony and shake his hand, and I, I had to apologize. I said, "Look, this is how I get when I meet a famous person." That I, I met Bruce Springsteen, and I lost my mind. And he said, "I'm not famous." I said, "I'm a juggler." Dude, and yeah. so he and he had to nod his head and say, "Okay, I guess I am." And yeah, in yeah, this yeah. little tiny niche, he really is. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I get up on stage, and it was a very unpopular female principal of the school and a uh, very unpopular male vice principal. It was Harry Powers and Gene Masters. And I just got up and did some off-color, mildly inappropriate jokes at their expense and tore the fucking house down <laughs> and got suspended for a week. Yeah, right. They were furious. Everyone else sort of liked it. My parents were furious. They... Wouldn't let me run in this tr- I used to be a pretty good middle distance runner, and I was winning races. And I was supposed to run in some state championship race, and they wouldn't let me run. And I was like, "Oh, yeah. because of the jokes?" Yeah, because they were trying what? to they were, they were trying to punish me. They were saying they were basically saying we used to be able to horsewhip these kids. Thank you very much, Supreme Court. How are we going to punish them? They said you can't go to the prom. You know, what? is, whatever. This well, because of the talent show, this 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 small town high school. That's Do you remember the, any of the jokes? Yeah, tell so, <laughs> That if I do it now, I'm doing it as Peter Panic. Yeah, I actually have a photograph that I could show you. Oh, yeah? I'm 17 years old. I'm skinnier than I am now. At least were you wearing I green? I can't shave. No, I'm not wearing green. <laughs> Here's what I'm wearing. I'm wearing a Garfield T-shirt. <laughs> Garfield, the cartoon, and I'm not wearing it. Ironically, I thought <laughs> you Garfield, loved Garfield. I liked Garfield. You know why? Because he was a cat and he had a bad attitude. Yeah. He didn't respect his owner. He was lazy. He would eat pizza all day and sleep. You yeah. know, that's that's how I'm telling you. That's what the square world that I came in. And I thought I was like that's nice. Your Garfield. <laughs> and, and oh yeah, sweatpants, mm. sweatpants and running shoes. That's my costume. When I look at that photograph, it was pretty I, hip back then though. Oh. The no, sweatpants. no. I actually just went to my 30-year high school reunion. So I went back and I saw my parents. They have the photograph, and I now I have it on my cell phone. But I actually was giving them a hard time. I, my mother drove me to school that day because I had my toy unicycle. I said, why didn't you let me dress like that? Why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you tell me to put on a shirt with a collar <laughs> right. and a nice pair of pants? Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. just joking. With I've gotten to the point where I can sort of tease with them and joke a little bit. But at the time, they didn't really ask me what I was going to do in my act. But, yeah. So one of the jokes... For my next trick, I need to borrow items from the audience. I need a $50 bill, a half ounce of cocaine, and Jean Master's underwear. <laughs> oh, I forgot. She doesn't wear underwear. Uh. And I would have gotten that joke from the book uh, Street Performing in America, right. the Patricia Campbell book. Oh. There was a Venice chainsaw juggler that right. she actually quoted. And I look back and say, she published these guys' jokes in a book, and the only people that's going to read it is people that want to steal his act. Yeah, yeah. So it's a weird thing, but you know, we all do steal each other's lines and everything else. But I think that what was so silly because I wasn't like a tough kid in high school. Right. I was on the track team. I wasn't like a popular kid or anything like that. So it just came from so out of the blue that I would, you know, do that. To me, the end of the story was: first of all, they said you can't go to the prom, and some random woman calls the high school and yells at the principal.
2: Yeah.
1: And says. It's the girl's prom too. Don't ruin the girl's prom. Let right. them go to the prom. Right. And that, that was just someone, it wasn't the girl's mother. It was just someone that heard the story and said, it's the girl's fucking problem. They've already rented tuxedos. I've already paid the fee. What, are you going to give me the money back? So the other thing that happened was uh, the first time I got paid, a guy calls me up. And he says, uh, my son goes to high school with you. And uh, he says, you got a juggling act. I said, yeah. Yeah. He said, I manage a mall." and we're going to have a grand reopening. We're going to have a thing, and I'm looking to hire some entertainment. Uh, my son says, you're good. He says, what do you charge? <laughs> and I didn't have an answer. Yeah, I don't you didn't know the, at that I point. Have, right, right? I don't have the slightest idea. Yeah. And if anyone's listening, the idea is you ask them some leading questions, how many people, how much time, you tell them all the yeah, things you can negotiate. do. Yeah, Negotiate. You, yeah, you, but you're just trying to get a feel for them, and it eventually yeah. ends up with, approximately, what is your budget? Right. You know, because my fee is going to be, you know, as much as I think I can get from you. Or some people have standard fees that it's this much. Oh, nothing, but I, yeah. Yeah, but I don't, I don't mind doing that dance, and it's not what you're worth. It's, you get what you negotiate. But anyway, the guy realized I, I had to stutter. I don't know how to talk anymore. Right. And he, and he says, look, uh, it's two hours, noon to two. Are you available? I said, yeah. He says, look, I'm going to pay you what I'm paying the band. I'm going to pay you $250. Wow. For two hours' work. Be there a half hour early. Because I was working at the supermarket. I was like a paper boy. I was making $3 an hour wow. at the supermarket. My first gig as a clown, I got 30 bucks for There you go, right. Yeah. And you absolutely remember it. Yeah. Pretty much everyone has that story to tell. Yeah. I really look at that as an example of what the arts can do. Like, there were mm. people that really were trying to punish me. And then all these other people whatever, all of a sudden, like, for the last two weeks of school, I was kind of a popular kid.
2: Right, right.
1: Even though they had a, a suspended me for a week. but, so but like, it kind of they, hooked you in. You were well, like, wow. Yeah, people are smacking me on the back. You know, yeah. the girl that I had a crush on that I had no chance with, she looked at me and said, that was great. Oh, nice. And that, there it is. <laughs> That's why I did it. Punish me all you want, you know. Um, and my my parents actually are still really... It apparently used to annoy them when someone that knew me or was there would come up to them and say, that was great what your son did. Because they're like, no, it wasn't. Weird to oh, me really? like that. Yeah, they really were. Right. They just Because I was getting rewarded for doing something they didn't want me to do. Right. What did they want you to do? go to school and be normal. Right, right. Um, but for me to come out as a juggler, I might as well have said, I'm going to be a gay porn star. This is my boyfriend <laughs> Rufus and I'm going to I'm not just going to be gay, I'm going to be professionally gay. And I'm going to have a website, I'm going to be famous for being your gay son. You know that's that's how, how I it. cuz a lot of people will say, look, of course your parents didn't want you to go to show business. No one would want that, but right. if, for me, I don't know. I guess I got an extreme dose of it and I credit it with it pushed me all the way to becoming Peter Panic you know because I had to just go that far
2: and um did you
1: start uh, with the like the different props early on or like the big balls well those came a little bit later in the beginning it was like you know I saw anything cigar boxes devil sticks uh I mean I just worked with Dan Menendez Oh yeah, and I was talking to him. I said, "Look, man, you were one of the first guys that I really saw." He's definitely the first guy I saw doing that five Bouncing. ball bounce. Nice. Our Waldo would have been very early on. Waldo was sort of a big influence because he just was so cool. Yeah. And I think Dan is a great guy, and he's had success. He's been robbed relentlessly, yeah, um, totally. But, but he has a very good attitude and a good spirit about it, and he's a good hero for me. I like having heroes, and I look at Dan and say he deserves his success. He's a yeah, really good guy, definitely. Um, and the big balls. I saw Mike Churik in 1984 at the Las Vegas Juggling Convention, just putting up five big balls. I mean, I'd seen seven balls and rings and five clubs and everything else, but I mean, it's the, a killer trick. It's so, so visual. It's yeah, it's
2: big. How long take you to practice that? Like it's
1: well, hard to get to five, right? Yeah. I mean, I was pretty ambitious as a juggler. I was working on like I don't know, hard tricks, five clubs and seven rings, and I started working with the volleyballs. And something about them, they other people s- seem to think they're really hard, but I found that there's. Something about it that suits me, and uh, I think it's hard to start, hard to stop, yeah, the starting and stopping is and they take up more space in the air, but the patterns are the same they don 't move any yeah. faster or slower, and it did lead to me whatever creativity that I came up with, I did sort of feel like for a while there I was creating like sort of fairly original moves, which is a fun thing to do because it's you know a lot of people they learn the repertoire, they learn what 's out there, and it 's hard to come up with new things, even though a lot of times if you think you came up with something new, it turns out it 's been done before, but the fact that you created it without knowing that doesn't diminish that and um you did a lot of other stuff before you started doing street yeah i got a job no one believes this but i got a job with a medicine show
2: yeah i've heard you tell this story before it's pretty cool
1: yeah and and medicine shows are obviously a relic from the 19th century into the 20th century but this guy sort of kept it going as a nostalgia thing it was a variety country music variety show he had a Houdini sub trunk he had like uh, you know, the gun that shoots the card or you know, like right, different right. magic tricks. And he had a spot for like a juggler unicycle, A guy named Bertie McLean. Right, had I done heard it. the name, yeah. Yeah, Bertie had done it. The guy that I replaced was a guy named Jim Stutz, who was an old school juggler that did like cigar boxes and kind of gentleman style. I was trying to be a gentleman style at that point with right, right. top hat and the
2: oh, started Bobby trying May to wear kind of
1: deal. Tuxedo. Yeah, Bobby May was a huge influence yeah. on everyone. And again, someone like Waldo um, had just such a great look to him. But uh, I'd gone to a year of college. What did you go to college for? Nothing. I just, I just, it was like another year of high school. I had to go to college. Oh, all right. Yeah, the same reason I had to be a Boy Scout and I had to go to church. Like right. My parents still had the ability to say, you have to. So after a year, I looked into the regulations of like the contract you sign when you go to college and you're allowed to take a personal leave of absence. Mm. You can take it for whatever health reasons. You can take it for personal reasons. And so I filled out the form. I said, I want to take two semesters off. I want to take a full year off school. I'm not burning the bridge. I'll come back. And they, you know, a little questionnaire, you have to have an interview, like, what are you going to do with your child? Because they don't want to hear that I want to go home and smoke dope on my parents' right, couch right. or anything like that. You know, like, Which I wouldn't have done anyway, but... I want to go travel the country. Well, right. I said, I'm looking for opportunities in the entertainment industry. Right. I was in Grinnell, Iowa. There's nothing going on there. Although there was a Playboy Club in Des Moines. I used to fantasize about working at a Playboy Club. <laughs> <laughs> Doing what? When I was 18 years old. as a juggler. Are you kidding me? <laughs> wouldn't that be, that'd be living the dream for an 18-year-old? Totally. It still is, actually. Yeah. I would take time.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure it's a heavily paying gig, but... Uh, no, Playboy <laughs> Clubs used to be. I never actually
1: went to one in my life. There might be one here in Grand Prairie. <laughs> there might be. <laughs> so, um... All right, so I got a year off now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my parents are furious that I'm leaving school. And I didn't really have a plan. I'd heard about San Francisco. I hadn't even been there. I thought, maybe I'll go to San Francisco. But then I had a friend that was Spanish, and he wasn't going home to Spain over the summer... It was going to be hard to work, and he didn't have a place to stay mm-hmm. in Iowa, and he didn't want to stay there anyway because it's boring. So he had this idea, he had some friends that were going to be in Alaska, and they said, if you can get your ass up here, you can make money, and there's no laws at all. There's, we don't care about social security numbers or green cards or anything. So he was just sort of speculating over lunch one day. How am I going to get to Alaska? I could hitchhike to Alaska, but I didn't want to go alone. A lot of Europeans think the United States is full of serial killers and crazy people. So... I don't know, I probably tried reading Kerouac or Jack London and stuff like that, and I loved the idea of hitchhiking to Alaska. So I said, just wow. out of the blue, one day at lunch, I said, I'll do it with you. I'll go to Alaska with you. Let's hitchhike up there together. From San Francisco? Well, we took a bus to uh, Seattle. Right. And then our, we had a friend that drive, drove us across the border and dropped us off. But that was the thing, is like just on the spur of the moment, I said, I'll do it. I'll go with you. Let's hit check. And everybody else was like, You guys really? Because we were serious. I was like, hey, Yeah, what? let's do it. And we had a plan and we even got a little advice. Neither one of us had ever done it before, but we knew someone who did and he gave us some pretty good advice. And turns out it was easy because on the way to Alaska, it's the Alcan Highway, man. There's only one road. Right, right, There's right. goes all the way. And it's actually coming right through here. It's exactly 30 years ago, right now, is in Alaska. So it's not that far from where we are right now. Wow, that's Grand cool. Grand Prairie, right. How long did it take to get up there? Like a week. A little more than a week. Mm-hmm. And, and were you
2: camping along the way? Or we were even... sleeping
1: outside, sleeping yeah. rough. We got picked up by a couple guys. They were sleeping in the car. Tommy uses. this? And we were sleeping... Summertime, May. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, but no, just... We had sleeping bags or whatever. But, uh, yeah, we were just uh, sleeping outside or whatever. Yeah. And uh, when I got there, my friend had... You know, he had sort of had a little bit of a plan with some people that I didn't know. And I didn't really want to kind of tag along with him. Yeah. Our deal was we're going to go up together now that we're here. So when we get into Anchorage, the guy that was driving us was sort of sick of the whole situation. And I just said, let me out. We're in a park in Anchorage. And I just got out of the car and walked away. Right. When I later reconnected with my friend, he was like, well, that was crazy. What were you doing? I said, look, man, we were there. The situation was tense. I just wanted to get out. And it turns out that was a good instinct because his plan was it was a mess and everything right. else. And, and I ended up getting lucky. Um, but I was up there for like six months. So... And what were we doing out there? Skip along. I was washing dishes. I cleaned fish in uh, Valdez. Right. Uh, I worked in this r- really remote place called McCarthy, Alaska, which is in the saint Elias National Park. And uh, it's beautiful, beautiful mountains and glaciers. But then I ended up getting this job washing dishes and pumping gas at a truck stop between Palmer and Tok. You know that road? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the Eureka Lodge. Pretty sure it's still there. And I was there until the end of November. But what happened was you're in the kitchen running a dish machine and a car would pull up outside it's 40 degrees below zero yeah 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 it got down to 40 below (laughs) so I'd have to like put on clothes and go outside pump some gas gas. go back inside take the clothes off another car comes up I remember like three trucks in a row come up yeah I was gonna die yeah I'm getting hypothermia (laughs) um it's just cold, but the people were really nice up there.
2: And uh, no, you weren't doing any
1: juggling. Well, I would do. I was practicing, and I would, always that would be what I would talk about. That's the right. second thing I'm going to tell you is what's my name and what do you do. And I do remember there was a regional school that approached me somehow, and I don't even remember how they knew I was a juggler other than I wasn't keeping it a secret. But they said, "We're having a Halloween party, right? Costumes and bobbing for apples, and uh, we're going to have a band or whatever." And they said, uh, "We can't pay you, but would you do a show for us?" I said, "Yeah, I really remember that. I would have scrounged whatever props I had, like some tools from the garage. Right? I would have had knives Dance from balls. the kitchen. Yeah. I had probably had lacrosse balls because when I used to hitchhike, I used to juggle five lacrosse balls.
2: That's what that is.
1: Yeah, I know. It and should be
2: said that there's one ball in the room, and I got which I used to massage my neck, and Peter's
1: so, playing with ball. it the whole time. Right. But this is." <laughs> Before the silicones came along, this was the ball. Yeah, the uh, l- brine usually the cross ball. But um, at that time, I was making my own torches. I don't remember if I would have done that, but uh, and I really remember this: that after the show, which would have been whatever, I didn't have much sense of costume or anything. But I'd be out pumping gas, and these guys, just local guys, would be saying, "You know, that was great. We're still talking about that. Right, that was right. really something." What you did, small town, Juggling all but, this yeah, thing. yeah. It's not even a town; it's a, it's a highway. But I really remember that. They went out of their way. They were nicest people in the world in Alaska, as far as I'm concerned. There's not that many people, Same. so they tend to be friendly, and it's the easiest hitchhiking ever because they just pull the car over. Right. right. They got guns.
2: They're, yeah.
1: They're drunk. Yeah. You know they don't <laughs> give a shit about anything. No rules. Know? Yeah. So people love the idea of you can go there. It's still the Wild West. You know, in their minds. You know. Yeah. So. And uh, you know, is that where you hooked up with the Madison Show? Well, no. I ended up going back to college. Mm-hmm. I did the whole year. Oh, yeah, the rest of the year I hitchhiked around California all the way down to San Diego. Started trying to street perform. I went through San Francisco. First time street performer? Yeah, I mean, I was trying it, but I wasn't... I was... Oh, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit because the early failure is painful. I remember trying to do a street show in San Diego and just failing. And I, at that point, I didn't have any money. Well, you would probably never done, like, a crowd gather or no, a hat line. Or, right, I had no, you right. I thought I could just stand there and juggle. Right. And it turns out... And, but I was watching, like, Chuck Marquette... Right. Chuck Marquette used to have a twenty-two foot unicycle and what? Yeah, twenty-two foot. Wow. And he would just assemble it on the pitch. And By get the time a crowd he got done doing it. Yeah, yeah, he eventually fell off the damn thing. Oh. Um, but uh, there were good shows in Balboa Park. But yeah, I had you know minimal props, and I remember right. I had a tomato, and I was going to eat the tomato like as if it's an apple. Right, right, right. But I couldn't get a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't make any money at all. Nothing. Nothing. Wow. At all. And I didn't have money to buy dinner. So I remember forcing myself to eat this sort of half-rotten tomato as a bitter pill because that's what you get for fail. Uh, <laughs> like, you know. So did anyone tell you, like, how yeah, to
2: structure a show? Or? A little
1: bit. I mean, I was talking to people. But I would also do things like, right after that, I was flat broke, but I joined a circus, Circus Vargas, right. Uh, right outside of San Diego. And then they went up to L.A. and I'm on the tent crew. Nice. Putting that 10 up its about the hardest work I ever did in my life. I've done that job. Putting that 10 up. And this was a big three-ring circus. They'd use a tractor trailer to pull the center poles up. Yeah, It was about the size almost of a football field. So that was hard work. But they had a couple of juggling acts Zanzari's, juggling girls. and Pat But Davidson. they didn't have you in the show? No. Just I did ten, some juggling yeah. for them. I showed it to them. But no, it really wasn't a polished act. It was, certainly was a circus act. Yeah. But I was trying to talk to people. But yeah, I ended up going back to college Right before that year was over, my younger brother tragically died. My brother that had learned to juggle, he was 16 and he was on a hiking trip and he, uh, you know, accidentally, you know, fell off the mountain. So that was like a uh, horrible thing. Uh, But I went back to college, but by then I was sort of the wild man of Borneo. Right. You know, I'd been hitchhiking and I'd been sort of independent. And so I really wasn't much of a student at that point, but I had quite a few adventures I look back at a time like that. It was very Peter Panic activity. Oh yeah! Long before I had the name. Right, right. I was acting like Peter Panic.
2: Yeah, you always used to say, "I'm a rebel. I'm a stone cold rebel." Well,
1: (laughs) and that's the thing is, I really look at myself. I'm not a particularly dangerous dude, but but I like that pose. I think a lot of artists love the outlaw pose. Yeah, yeah. The rule breaker, the you know, the trickster, the the devil in green pants. Yeah, you know, that's me. I should put that on my how do you want that's to be awesome. How do you want to be introduced? Here the he is, devil in green the, pants. The Devil in Green Pants. Yeah. You wow, that's you know? Uh, <laughs> right. I one time in a program, you know, they have a little blurb. Yeah. Who is this guy? I said he's an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wearing a green vest. <laughs> 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 it just makes no sense at all. Yeah. Or like like running around with a wig on or something like right, that. It just right. doesn't it just it's but it makes people laugh. Actually, it makes me laugh first. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But people like... It. So, so, but anyway... So that's the whole idea from Peter Panic is uh,
1: being, like, out there and... Well, Peter Pan rebelled against his mother and refused to grow up. Right. And ran away and got away with it. Yeah. And, you know, there's maybe a tragic aspect to it, but, but yeah, he escaped. Like, my father was a bit of a tragedy because he was a real mama's boy. Oh, yeah? 60 years old, and his mother could still just... You know, (laughs) and so I think maybe just naturally, inherently, I wanted to, I can't allow that to happen. Because my mother, again, very fearful, and if I let her, if I have to be an instrument of her will, I'm just doomed. Right. So anyway, after this year, again, just, you know, all kinds of antics, but I'm failing out. I'm not doing the work. Right. And I had a good buddy, really good friend of mine named Eric Nelson that I've tried to stay in touch with. Because this, to me, was a life-changing moment. Again, I sometimes get rewarded for doing the wrong thing. I get rewarded for doing something I should be punished for. But he was trying to do his work and trying to pass his classes. But this is the early days of computers. And he'd written this whole paper and somehow it, it evaporated. Into, it just got deleted. Oh, no. So all this work that he was going to do because he was going to try to pass, it was gone. Right. And he was pissed off. And he said, it's like after lunch, he said, let's go to the bar. Right. There's only one bar in town. It's called The Bar. And, and we go down there like, you know, daytime on a Tuesday. So it's only local people in there because yeah. all the college students are finishing their writing their papers. And it was sort of like one of these towns. It's like there's the college and then there's the townies. It's a, yeah, it's yeah, a farm yeah. town. It's a, it's, you know. So anyway, we go in there and there's a couple guys playing pool. We want to play pool. So we say, okay, let's play partners. The loser buys a pitcher. So we're playing them. And this guy says, whatever we're talking about, whatever. And this guy says, I just finished a tour with the medicine show. A 10-month tour, different town every day, playing high school auditoriums, gymnasiums, civic centers, nice, yeah, right. nice theaters, and the basement of an Elks Lodge. What was he doing? Everything else. He was a singer, uh, like a, I don't know, Randy Travis wannabe. So right, like right. he played play guitar. But he also started saying, I also do magic. I do, like, this Houdini sub-trunk, Metamorphosis Escape. Right. And also they did a thing where they had, a, like, a sub-trunk that appears to be empty. They pull the curtain, pull some stuff out of it, and then shoot off a gun and a guy in a gorilla suit comes out of it. Right. What it looked like an a suit and runs around and terrorizes the audience, <laughs> causing, you know, like, surprising one got a heart attack. Because they, you know. But it was like a, everyone would get up and sing three songs kind of thing, you know, and we would sell snake oil. Oh, right. Actually sell proper steak oil, and they would do it. Again, it's more of a nostalgia. You know, grandparents would bring their grandkids and relive their youth, or the show made money because they would... They had a really good advance team that would go ahead and book, find a sponsor, find a venue, and sell blocks of tickets to merchants right. as advertisers. So it was always a good crowd. Well, we sometimes wouldn't have a good crowd, but they'd always made their money. Right. Because they'd sold the tickets in advance. Now, sometimes they did a good job of promoting the show and we'd get a great crowd. Sometimes we wouldn't have that much. Right. And we did better in small towns. Like big cities, like... I remember being in Ogden, Utah. and it was nobody <laughs> I've like, never even heard of that. But if right. Well, that's actually a For Utah, that's a pretty big city. It's the 2nd largest city. Brother. But what, Salt Lake? What's bigger than Ogden? I've been to Logan.
2: I've been to Salt Lake. Uh, but I've never even heard of
1: Ogden. Well, look. I've been in all 50 states, and here's the reason why. Sorry to the people of Ogden. Right. No, right. No, it's a... Whatever. It's, it's, Utah's beautiful. But mm. uh, this show did go to, to 40 states on a 10-month tour, different town every day. But anyway, as we're playing pool in the bar, I was like, tell me more. And I was like, juggling? You gotta and he said, well, we had a juggler, but the guy quit. This guy named Jim Stutz, had, he started to get the jitters. He was an older guy, and he was afraid he was going to die in a wreck in Colorado. You know, the hills and the traveling. He just didn't want to do it. Oh, wow. Day in day out. And a 10-month tour is a hell of a long fucking time. And it's only, it was $125 a week. Ooh, Yeah. But my lodging is taken care of. All I really need for is food. I have to buy my own food. Right. But we, we, I learned to live... You know, we had a little trailer with a kitchen. Yeah. So I wasn't eating out too much. Just, I, you know, learned how to cook. Yeah, right. Like hobo style. I always just throw everything into a pot and stir it up and put some <laughs> cheese in there. But, uh... So in the bar... Why is that funny? I just had poutine for dinner. Cheese in there. So... So in the bar, I say, look, I'm a juggler, dude. I'm a professional. I would have picked up pool balls. I would have juggled it. I would have bounced the pool cue. Right, I been, right. Like, going into it. And he was like, eh. Like, he didn't really want to take me that seriously. I said, look, but look, I seriously, I got a tall unicycle. I got all my props. I can juggle five clubs. He said, all right, I'll come see you. You know, I'll come over to the gym and I'll watch you. I'll give you, like, a little audition. Like yeah, that. Yeah. He thought he's. So the next day, he doesn't show up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. But I had his name. I didn't have a phone number. And I open up the local phone book and look up Miller. And there's about 15 of them. Oh, yeah? And I just start going through. Is Tim Miller there? Is Tim Miller there? Is Tim Miller there? No. Is Tim Miller there? No. Is Tim... Yes. Put him on for me. And I'm like, hey, do you remember me? I'm the guy from the bar. <laughs> um, you were going to come... You are going to audition me. Yeah. He said, yeah, something came up. You know, uh, right. whatever. I said, can you just give me the number of the guy that you work for? And I'll just get in touch with him. And he did, and so I called Tommy Scott, the guy that runs the show. It was Tommy Scott's last real old-time medicine show. He's actually got a star in the country music walk of fame. Oh, yeah? And he was on Letterman a couple times. Right. And he self-published a book, but he's a guy that's, that existed. He had a long career in show business, and he was a good entertainer. It's not like a con. like People think it's like you know, you're know you cheating people, but it really he, he was just a showman. Right. And that was the angle, was that it wasn't a circus. It was a variety show that was labeled as medicine, and his thing was, I'm the last one. I'm the last authentic one. So uh, I call him up, and I'm just trying to talk to him, saying, you know, I got this act. I met this guy, Tim Miller. And he says, "Uh, maybe, you know, because he's trying to put his act together. they got to do a 10-month tour starting in February. This was around Christmas or something. He says, call me back. Nice. So a little while later, I go home to see my family at Christmas and, you know, whatever. I'm failing out of college twice now for the second (laughs) time. I'm flaking out. And I have no idea what I'm going to do. Other than I thought maybe I'd hitchhike to New Orleans and try to juggle because I knew New Orleans was a town. Straight before. But anyway, I called Tommy Scott up and he says, if you get down here and if you're half of what you say you are, you got a job. But you got to sign on for 10 months. Wow. So I did. I went down there and they gave me a damn job. That's awesome. Yeah. And in the beginning, oh man, I look back, I was nothing but a green kid. (laughs) Because I wasn't wearing green at the time, I didn't really have much in terms of costume. I didn't have music, I didn't have a microphone. Yeah. They're just throwing me out on stage. And they gave me this costume it's like silver glitter uh, sleeves, All right. like puffy sleeves. And a top that's not really a top. It just ties. is juggling. Yeah, you just tie it yeah, bow, yeah, so yeah. I got a bare chest. I didn't have a hair <laughs> on my chest. I'm really seeing <laughs> the guy was living with a banjo player on roller skates, he was just laughing at me, going, that's yeah. not the right shirt for yeah, you. Yeah. You don't have the figure for, you know. <laughs> so that was my initial costume. And I thank the good lord that there's no photographs existing that I'm aware of. Right. Because I have very little record of those early days, but I finally got my hands on like a You know, more of like a a tuxedo shirt with the ruffles and the stripe down the side, you know, the racing stripe pants. I was trying to be like the flashy gentleman juggler style.
2: Nice. And did you bring that to the street, the uh, the old outfit there?
1: I tried it once or twice, but it doesn't work on the street. No. It doesn't belong on the street. Where did you do most of your first street shows? Like, where did you really learn how to do street? I got good at it in Boston, but I had tried, like, Key West, San Francisco, San yeah. Diego. Uh, Boulder, Colorado, in 1988, was yeah. where I first put a shopping cart on my face. Mm-hmm. So, And I had a How show. Where would that come from? Uh, well, Boulder had a pretty good scene on Pearl Street Mall. No, yeah, but the whole shopping cart. Where did well, that idea come from? Well, I had, like, two unicycles and gear and clothes and everything else, and I'd be trying to get from a bus station to a train station. Yeah. I'm trying to, like, hitchhike and stuff. And I just ended up using the shopping cart the way homeless people do. It's just transportation. I can push more than I can carry. And then I just started looking at the thing as a juggling prop. And one of my heroes was a guy named Ed Jackman. Right. You know that name? No. Ed Jackman was a really pretty successful juggling act in the 80s into the 90s. He used to work NACA a lot. But one of his tricks, one of his signature tricks, was he would balance a 10-speed bicycle on his head while juggling. Yeah, and that used to make a terrific impression on people. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking for something I didn't want to do. The bicycle tough trick, balancing and juggling at the same time. Yeah, it is. But that's one of the things that I worked pretty hard on. Yeah. That's I had seen some of my heroes doing that. I was always impressed by, by that type of thing. And then you put it in your street show, and you got a good reaction well, right away, or what? Yeah, it took me a while because for a while I could do the balance. I could hold the balance, but I couldn't really get the juggling off. But I was practicing it, and then one day it just clicked. Yeah, and yeah, I put it into the show. And I used to, try, I actually did it for about 20 years now. I don't do it. Yeah, that. it
2: was like you've seen it to move.
1: Yeah, but I feel like. I was talking to Hilby about it, like, should I have been doing it in Edmonton? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, what's what's the reason you stopped doing Um, it? I don't really do that much street anymore, and it's a shopping cart is just really very street. Right. It's very homeless looking. It's very street. It's obviously (laughs) stolen. It's a stolen. Right. (laughs) Like, why would you want to have a prop that's obviously stolen? (laughs) Yeah. And then you're going to turn around and ask for money. Like, and I used to do jokes and comments, and I used to sort of... Give my, uh, say my parents are really proud of me they say look for me he's on the street with the shopping cart yeah. so I just figure I don't have to be buried with it I can use it for a while right. and then put it away and but you found your legs in Boston like working Fanny Hall in Harvard Square yeah Harvard Square I went to Boston in 1990 right. and Harvard Square was a really who was, good was who was on the pitch then a guy named Ken Mack. Kenny had a really strong show a guy named Mark Farneth. the Airborne Comedians Dan and Joel were around like Alex the Jester Mm-hmm and uh and they, they, and they they're immediately, trying to help you out yeah they immediately adopted the show. Me. well that's the thing is i became friends right away with that whole gang and, and we're all still friends still um, yeah. and my show got better and jim ended up buying a sound system he wanted to buy electrosonics and it turned out if he buys two he's going to get a discount all right so he approaches me and says you want to buy one of these yeah so i'm gonna buy one. that's how i got my first sound system <laughs> nice jim bought you it know. for you yeah jim bought it for me <laughs> long ranger long ranger yeah no, and, no. and there's, there's people that do that like the first business card someone just finally takes pity on them and makes a business card for them yeah. or John made me a video yeah, just because he took pity on me because <laughs> I didn't really have a proper video mm. so I'm a little bit like a Peter Pan like I need Wendy to come along and like right. figure it out
2: nice and, uh, and so back in the day um, you had to audition
1: at Fanny Hall like we still do yeah we had to audition and I failed my first audition I did a couple shows there in the fall of 90, because we always used to share, a new guy in town, they're like, sure, it's your show, do a show. And no one was really paying attention, but spring of 91, I went down and auditioned, and I just had some bad luck as far as, they were doing construction on the West End, so there's a backhoe making all this noise, and they had the auditions, I was first at 11 on a Tuesday, and there's a bitter wind blowing, it's April 11th. Yeah, yeah, it's still pretty cold in April. Right, so... I went out and I did the best I could, but I don't really think I got a proper crowd. And and, and wasn't
2: uh, did you, they just have you do a street show, or did they have like
1: nope. the audition? Nope. That was at that time. It was just a just street show. Just a street show. This is way I should be. Yeah, right. So there's no MC or anything. Just right. go out and do it. Yeah. So after my audition, they said, "Well, let's go to South Market because it's loud and it's right, maybe, right, maybe not as much wind. not as much wind or whatever." So we go down to South Market and they have me do it again. Right. but I did sort of like just a relatively short thing I did balance a shopping cart and I think I juggled four volleyballs but, but again I, I felt like I was sort of frustrated from what had happened and, any, and I wasn't yeah. trying to make the whole day about me I just show them some, that I have some skills and hopefully right. they, they'll let me into the program but they didn't, and they let all these other people in. They let like Mark in. They let like thirty acts in, most of which didn't Mark, end up. Mark Farneth? Yeah, they he let used him to in. work Fanny Hall. No, he passed the audition, and he never did a show there.
2: Wow, isn't that
1: strange? He couldn't figure out a way to tie up a rope, and he, he worked didn't,
2: in Boston for how long and never worked Fanny. Never worked Hall? Fanny
1: Hall. He got in the audition one time, but he just didn't like. The vibe was wrong for him somehow. Right. So anyway, all these acts got in, and I didn't. And I was like, oh no. And I tried to get some of my friends to say, you know, this guy's good, but you don't really want to do that. You don't really want to stick your neck out for someone else that's like, sorry about that. Like, you couldn't help bike boy if you Yeah. There's nothing you can do. I tried, but... So, right. So, I just... Went and worked Harvard Square, and I, by that I was doing gigs. Like right. you know, people would hire me. Um, and Harvard was good back then. Harvard was good, and it also one thing that was great about the street Someone would see you do a show, and they'd come up and say, "Look, I'm having a barbecue, or I'm having yeah. my corporation is having a thing." Or they'd sometimes say kids parties, and I usually would say, I'm "Really not a kids yeah. party," but but I would be like, you know, I would do anything. I don't turn work down if you want to pay whatever I want to charge. I would just overcharge for a kids party to where they wouldn't want me. Right because It's not really a kid's show anyway, but so yeah, I'm just you know, I quit my day job. I like Harvard because you could get away with more there than you could have found. Yeah, it, more. it was you could be it was a nighttime show, although you, we never really cursed. I remember Peter Gross one time going because he used to work more Faniel Hall, but you know, right. there was a scene in Harvard, so one night he shows up in, in Harvard and starts his show saying okay, it's nine o'clock, so I can say fuck if I want to. <laughs> and I remember the audience sort of turning on him. Yeah. Because, like, w- for whatever reason, we don't curse in Boston. Right. Like, right. it's not like New York or Venice Beach or something like that. Right. Where you have to. Yeah, uh, it is a
2: little bit clean cut. Yeah,
1: it's, it's, you know, it's a college town and it's, you know, conservative in its way, but it's, Harvard Square. We thought it was still the '70s for a while there. Right. You it know? was cool
2: though. It was a coo- It was a scene. There was always the same yeah. people hanging around on the pitch, like right. not just performers, but like right. Just the people that hung around there all the time. Yeah.
1: A lot of local people. There was yeah. a lot of bands playing. People wearing tie dyes and smoking yeah. dope, and it was still sort of like that. That you know, it's gone now though. The only, it's only one, not one left is whole. Blue. Right. Yeah. And he, I don't even see him as a performer. I see him as yeah. A, as a, a maniac, but yeah. you know, good for him. I would never say you can't do it, but I can't have a conversation with him anymore. He's one of these people that thinks nine one one is an inside job and stuff like that. Yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. Can't have a conversation with him. But uh, they didn't let me in, and I, so I just went away. And then in ninety two, they didn't even hold auditions, right? Because they'd let too many people in the year before, and they'd already The already established acts were saying, "We don't want more. We anymore. don't want any more." Yeah. yeah, you let in too many, so no auditions at all, and. Uh, I guess I just decided to go out there and work. Gazzo was working over at by Abercrombie and Fitch. He'd been yeah. kicked out, but he would just go do it anyway. Yeah. He was yeah. off the property like the way Rami Salami is now, but, yeah. and, and so he was working as a renegade doing whatever he wanted, you know, killing huge shows, but I didn't really think I could do that because I just didn't have the nerve. So I just started lurking around the pitch. And if no one else would do a show, I would just jump, jump out on. with no sound system. Right. And, and apparently the security guards just thought I was one of the other acts. Right. And I got away with it all summer long. Nice. Um, and I started doing pretty good shows. Yeah. And everybody sort of knew, like my friends and the other performers, they knew. The thing was, if anyone had a spot, or even if they didn't have a spot, they had priority over me. Of course. Because yeah. I, you know, I was doing it Picking as, up a, the scraps. as a bandit. Right. And I kept waiting for them to catch me, and then finally one day I look up. And there she is, the woman that had said, you know, you're not good enough to do street shows in this town. Right. And I sort of had a speech prepared where I called her out and said that woman. Oh, in the show? Yeah. That (laughs) woman in the red dress right there told me that. And, you know, First Amendment this and, Oh um, yeah. you know, Land of the Free, Home of the Brave. And only twice in my life I've actually used the stage as a bully pulpit to go after someone personally. One time was my high school principal, and this other time I did. I went after her, and I didn't, again, I didn't do anything like, I didn't curse her or insult her. I just said, they tell me that I can't come out and do a free show. not good enough. And tell you jokes and, and do tricks. And I was able to obviously get the audience to say, do you think I'm good enough? Anyway, and I didn't pass the hat. I said, if you like the show, go and tell her. that." So she's with another guy, and she won't even come talk to me. She was livid. The face was purple. The guy comes over in a suit and he says, what was up with that? I said, well, you know, they won't let me work here. He says, well, now you'll never get it. I said, I'm not in anyway. You can't fire me if I'm not here anyway. And he said, you got a point there. But I felt like I totally burned my bridges in Boston. It's time to leave Boston. So I ended up going to Europe uh, for a while because for whatever reason, I wanted to be like a European street performer. Where
2: where Where'd you go?
1: Belgium. with yeah. Uh, yeah, Brady was living over there. In Antwerp. In Antwerp. Awesome. And he had an apartment, and I went over there and split the rent with him for a while, but I couldn't figure out a street show in, in Belgium. At the cathedral? There was a cathedral there. Uh-huh. There was a guy on a nine-foot unicycle named Jack. Jack Jacks. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and Brady was doing shows and various other people. We'd go up to Amsterdam or whatever, but... Uh, I didn't have language skills. Well, I mean, Belgium and Holland, you can pretty much get away with English. I know, you can, but there's a technique to it, too. You can't just do it. No, you got to do it slow. You can't do it. And when I get nervous, I start talking faster. Yeah. So that doesn't help. (laughs) And I remember one of the things, I couldn't stand the shopping carts. Oh, they had different shopping carts. They tiny little shopping carts. Oh, yeah, they're and tiny. Because there's right. a store for cheese, there's a store for bread. There's yeah. a, they don't have the big mega supermarkets, yeah. which is a stupid thing to complain about. What's the worst culture shock? The shopping carts. Yeah, the terrible. shopping carts aren't big enough. But at that time, I really was <laughs> identifying with that trick. So, yeah. and oh, yeah, by then I'd started dating this girl. And, you know, I was over in Europe and not doing anything. In the start of, so I just went back to the States. I got a gig. Working for the guy that owns the Miami Dolphins. Oh yeah, and I'm um, you know it was better for me to have a girlfriend. Um, but then I'm back in Boston, going it's going to be spring, and ha- I hear they're having auditions. Right, and I'd really love to somehow just because I my the politics of the way that I played it, I didn't think was the best. Right, it's a lot of politics, and, I and had the management changed? No, nope, it was a lot of mostly the same people. Right, so um, I call up on the phone. And I'd say I'm a juggling act. I'd like to audition to be a Fanny Hall street performer. Yeah. And they said, "Okay, you can have a time slot." What's your name? And I said, "Peter Panic." Nice. Because Peter McLaughlin was mud. Yeah. That name was mud. So yeah. then I'm going. It's gonna be the same people. I'm not gonna fool. Right. It. Right. But I figured I'm just gonna go down and try to do a good do show. A good show. And be you know just demonstrate that I can be a professional and that I'm not a crazy person. I go. Down, it was pouring rain the day they are um, gonna have it. Pouring rain. I get my buddy Dan Foley to drive me down there because I didn't even have a car. Yeah. And he drops me off, and he won't. He's not going in with me. He right. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want to be seen. He with doesn't that. want to be seen. Ah. With me So I go in, and it was up where they, they used to have like Comedy Connection or whatever. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Up upstairs. That big empty room, and it was this woman that I had bitched out and Rob Salafia. Do you remember the name Rob Salafia? No. Rob was an old school street performer who you know, he's a good guy and I consider him a friend and I'll always be grateful for what he did because I come in and this woman sees me and she hates me Yeah. and they have me go out for five minutes and then Rob comes out and he says, look, um, apparently there was something that's going on. I talked to her a little bit and they had brought Rob in because they trusted him because they realized these corporate people, they don't know how to And it's weird to audition for a street performer because you're kind of looking for someone that has potential. They might not have a great show, but they have some good ideas Uh and a good attitude and some skills. So Rob comes out and says, come in and do it and see what happens. And I actually apologized to her. I said, look, I'm sorry. It just was my livelihood that I felt was threatened. And, you know, uh, again, I can be professional and uh, I can behave myself. And I did a good audition just for the two of them. Right. And talked to them and I was reasonable. And I go out and they let me into the program. Nice. And I remember the first time I saw the Peter Panic printed on the program. On the paper. On the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't even have the actual on the schedule. It's, now it's probably online. Yeah, it but is. But we used yeah. to get it in the mail. Yeah. And so then I was like, Peter Panic, that's real. Like, it was kind of like a, a joke Peter or,
2: Panic, one to three, where's Dan? Yeah.
1: And it was like an April Fool's Day joke. It was about <laughs> April 1st, 1993. Yeah. So it was like an April Fool's Day joke. That somehow people immediately responded to it, and I started wearing green. You're not supposed to be able to give yourself a nickname, but some people do. Like, you have a stage name, you have a stage yeah. name. You know? Well, my so,
2: cousin yeah.
1: said, Oh, you should call yourself Al right. I was like, Okay. <laughs> right. And I like really good stage names. Like, I knew this kid, he's a really good kid, a, a magician, and he's Justin Credible. Mm. That's just a great name. Mm. His real name is Justin, and he said his mother, when he was a kid, just started calling him Justin Credible. There's a lot in the name, man, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sounds in the name. Or like, uh... Peripheral. Yeah? is a stage name. Oh, really? Peripheral. Right. Peripheral, apparently. And that's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. You know? Pat Smear. Right. I mean, there's just some funny... punk. It's kind of like a punk rock thing. Yeah, yeah. Like Johnny Thunders or all those punk rock guys they all had. Yeah, Johnny
2: Rotten. Ah, street performers all come up with crazy names. Well, most of them do, anyway. It helps with selling the product. Yeah. Um... So, I want you to tell me some stories. All right. So, uh, I want to know about uh, the Harvard Square story, the Charlie's story and Charlie's. Where we always used to hang out at Charlie's. Charlie's, well, Charlie's was the place, like after the show. We worked till like, you know,
1: 11 o'clock, midnight, and yeah. then we'd go hang out at Charlie's. Go have something to eat and have a couple of beers, and we'd sit around and bullshit about who did the best show and stuff like that. And I like could that. always find you there. But what, the one with all the girls? Yeah. Oh yeah, well that was the thing. Is it was just a normal Saturday night. I think it was ninety eight, and it was like me, Dan, uh, Brady, Lucky Bob was there. Yeah. Uh, there was this guy named Ken, the balloon dude. Yeah, I remember that guy. Remember Ken? Yeah. We're going over to Charlie's. I swear to God, this is this is just like this. He says the food at Charlie's sucks. <laughs> who wants to go to Pizzeria Uno's? Right. And we're all like, eh, no, nah, nah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> We're going to Charlie's, so he goes off to Uno's oh, yeah. and has the world's greatest pizza. Right. So we go over to Charlie's and we just sit down and we're looking at menus, drinking a beer. And up the stairs comes three, four, five, six, ten—you know—lesbians. It's some rainbow of lesbianism. You know, butch, <laughs> dykey looking girls. Yeah. You can just see they're a gang. Maybe twenty of them. Oh yeah. And upstairs, right up the stairs. And Cambridge is really liberal. And everything else, but, like, you know, this doesn't happen every Saturday night. Right. So they push a bunch of tables together, and they sit down, and we're sort of over here, and they're over there, and they're just a rowdy bunch, and they're getting beers, and our food comes, and there's a jukebox, or, or there was a guy playing a guitar. I don't know if there was a jukebox. Those a good jukebox. Yeah, they have a good jukebox up uh, there. Charlie. But anyway, they're doing, like, sing-alongs, and they yeah. had this guy, this guy has one leg... He's in a wheelchair, but he's at the bar, and he's got a guitar, and they're having him sing, and they're singing along. And uh, one of these girls comes up to our table and says, Does anyone know how to play Hotel California on a guitar? Right. Because this guy doesn't know how to play it. We want to sing Hotel California. And we all look over at Dan, because he's the guitar player. And he says, You know, I could fake it, but that guy's pretty good, and this is his moment. And, by the way, who are you guys? Right. Like, what's going on? You guys look like fun. And she said, "Well, we're this collective of uh, performers, feminist, uh, whatever. We're doing poetry slams and whatnot." And uh, Dan's like, "That's cool. We're all performers too, jugglers and circus and stuff like that." So she goes back to her table, and we're giving Dan a hard time, saying, "Hey, I think she was flirting with you, Dan." Maybe right. Get her to change sides, and we look over, and they're teasing her. They're giving her a hard time. Right. Flirting with the boys. <laughs> so she comes back over, and she says, "Do some tricks for us." And we were like, "What?" She said, "Well, you're performers. Get up and do some tricks for us." We're like we just got done working, you know. We're trying to eat our food here. Right, right. Dan's monkey. Yeah. So okay, the, there's two heroes to the story. a Guy named Mike Smith used to be a short order cook at the Tasty. You remember the Tasty? The Tasty, the yeah, the burger Tasty. joint. Yeah, and he'd been in, it was in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, it was in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, and he was the guy that was in there at four in the morning. The place was open all hours. And uh, great, great guy. And he would always hang out on the pitch. He was everyone's friend. Yeah. You know, half crazy, not a performer, but he he's capable of anything, like in a good way. So he just gets up and he just says, let's do this. He could see what was going to... And he tried to do a cartwheel and he, didn't, he fell on his ass. He didn't know how to do a cartwheel. But he got the ball rolling because now the girls get up and they do an acro balance. All right. And uh, Dan balanced a chair on his chin. And they get up and they sing a song to the guitar or something like that. And I juggle like a salt shaker and, you know, a ketchup bottle and a spoon or something like that. Brady does a handstand. Right. So we're just going back and forth like that. And it was really becoming like a hell of a scene in the bar. Like yeah, the whole, for real. The, it's the up, it was upstairs, and so everybody's like, it's fun. Mike Smith turns to Lucky Bob and says, Bob, get up and do your trick. Right. And Bob is like, I don't have any props with me. I don't have <laughs> any stuff. I swear to God, this happened just like this. I was sitting there watching it. And Mike's like, you got to do something. You got to have, you know, what do you need? A deck of cards? What do you want? And Bob says, yeah, if you can get me a deck of cards, I'll do a card trick. So Mike gets up and he's just going to go around the bar. Someone's got a deck the of cards. cards. Yeah. yeah. He walks over to this woman, Lynn Breedlove. She was like the dykest, butchest woman there was. She's wearing leather lace-up pants. And she's sitting there slouched like this. And she's just tattoos and piercings and dyed hair and everything. Just tough-looking woman. Mike goes up to her and he says, Do you have a deck of cards? And she says, No, I don't have a deck. <laughs> she grabs her leg like that and she says, But I have a dick. <laughs> Man, Mikey just ran right into it. He just didn't believe her because you can see she's a woman. Right. You're a tough looking woman, but I don't know. So he says, Can I see it? And apparently she does this routinely. Like this is, we heard later that this was just a normal day for her. But she says if I pull it out how about you suck on it and I was about as close to them as I am to you and Mike says okay he just calls her bluff right so she gets up and starts unlacing her pants and Mike's just looking at her and Mike uh, had lost his teeth he can take out his teeth right. he's got a bridge so I said Mike take out your teeth <laughs> and he did he takes out his teeth puts them down on the table she stands up and she pulls out a strap on dildo like a pretty large strap-on dildo, and Mike just put it in his mouth, and the (laughs) fucking bar went bonkers. People, it just, it happened pretty quickly, but, like, immediately it was like this explosion that, like, the roof was going to come off the building. It was just the most (laughs) unbelievable thing anyone ever saw. And then, uh, all of a sudden, there's chaos from the back of the room. In the back corner, some kids started saying faggots and dykes and assholes, and that's disgusting, and we're getting all this shade being thrown at us so now that the girls are on their feet and they're literally ready to rumble I mean, they, they're ready to fight. They said they get into fights. Right. They instigate people. And it must be awful getting your ass kicked by a bunch of, you know, whatever. <laughs> saying they're not capable of kicking ass. And then the bartenders and the bar staff and the owners, whatever, they're like, get out. Everyone out. Everyone Pay out. Pay your bill. Get out. Right? Right. we had gone too far. Oh, yeah, because that was the other thing is Mike went over and one of the kids that was saying things, he went over there and the kid pulled out a knife. Oh. And so Mike cooled him down. Right. But it was like, get out. Everybody out of here. Yeah. So we go out. Now we're on the street and the kids that thought they were tough they're outside realizing we could actually properly get our ass kicked right now. So they just take off. So now it's just sort of like us and the girls and they're sort of smacking us on the back saying you guys are cool you know for men whatever. <laughs> um, and I had that house on Eustace Street right around the corner that right? was like the party house and so everyone was like Hey, let's have a party. Let's see if they want to come over. So we go up to them and like, hey, you know, you guys, do you want to smoke some pot? Let's have a party. <laughs> let's keep the party going. So they're like, okay. And not all of them came over. Like, I don't know, six or eight of them came over. And we st- heard more of the different stories of that, you know, and they apparently do things. They're on tour and they, they keep a scorecard, like who's getting the most tail. Right, right. And, and they were like, is that going to count? And, and they were like, oh, yeah, double points. Because <laughs> it's sex Straight- and- sex in public because right. apparently Lynn does that she, she'll get gay guys to sucker cock she'll get straight girls to sucker cock right. it's a real coup to get a straight man to actually do it but the thing about Mike is he's kind of crazy in a way that I admire like being willing to do anything although he did get teased relentlessly because that story went around pretty well. <laughs> he went he has brothers that live in Alaska not long after that he went to Alaska I said to him Mike they already know that story goes that story around the world. And he goes up there pretty quickly. He started telling the story himself, but it was fun to tease him for a little while.
2: All right, so uh, how
1: about a best and worst story? And you know the one I want you to tell me. Oh, that wasn't even such a bad story. I used to keep my shopping cart locked in like an alley around the corner. I used to ride my bike down there. I have a shopping cart locked with a kryptonite lock down there, and I'd use it as my finale of my show and my prop stand. Yeah. But as i was going back to the alley, you know, I tried to squeeze out a fart and I crapped my pants, <laughs> squirted my pants. And I just was like, oh, I can't believe I just did that. I got to go do a spot. So, yeah, I sort of ripped my underwear off and try to clean myself up. So I walk into Abercrombie and Fitch, walk, you know, take the elevator up. And I was like, I'm in the elevator and it's like, did someone fart? I'm like, what's that? <laughs> you know, someone, so I go up there and I'm like, I'm going to buy a pair of pants. So I buy a pair of pants and whatever. I did a couple shows. You left the underwear in the Singapore. alley, right? Yeah, no, I didn't. That was gone. Right. I didn't... That's finished. I, I saved the pants, though.
2: How about the uh, Singapore story, uh, William Lee? Oh, yeah. I, was there, I was there as well. It you was, were what, there. 2002 well, Singapore River
1: Busker Festival? Hilby was saying that he saw it. I mean, I don't know. Was Hilby there? Hilby was at that festival, and he claims he witnessed it. Right. So I admit... It's, it's a lot mar- of people claim they witnessed it, by the way. Oh, is that right? Well, yeah. I, I'm curious to see it. They said they used to tell me they have photos or videos or whatever, but whatever, it was like a, a party after doing days of shows in Singapore, and I guess William had a bottle of Grey Goose vodka. And, uh, you know, I found that me and beer are good friends, but me and hard liquor, sometimes <laughs> it, it, it can work against me. Anyway, apparently, I've been told... William offered me fifty bucks if I would uh, stick a bottle of whiskey up my ass. <laughs> the whole bottle? I don't know. That's or just I don't know exactly. But I think I joked about it. But other people say that I did it. I didn't right. really believe. that Well, the I joke
2: did. the morning after that was the story is that someone took a picture of Peter
1: Panic with a bottle of whiskey up his ass. No, but I just... I just you stick it between your legs. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, right. I really... I'm not the type of person that sticks a bottle up. But I never a the sort of picture... Right. I did not well, know what happened, but that was they, the, the... There room. were a couple of people that put a Photoshop picture on Peanut. Right. And it was on Peanut for a while. And as a matter of fact, that's... I walked away from Peanut over that. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, because I just felt like... Uh, I thought it was funny up to a point, but... I just also felt like maybe Jim was enjoying it too much. Right. That he's letting him put photos. You and Jim pictures. buddies? We are. We're friends, but we don't have a lot in common. So, and we would have fallen out at different times. I think I was probably a big disappointment to him because he felt like I could have been trying harder to be a right. successful Well, you artist. guys
2: are really different, though. We're
1: very different. That's yeah. things. We're real different. But I respect him. And he comes to my parties now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I just saw him just the other day and I don't think he's doing a whole lot of performing yeah. but I think he does when he gets a good gig he'll do it He's he seems to be really into being a father and he's got like this yeah. orchard like he's becoming a gentleman farmer or something like that
2: I took a lot of inspiration from Jim just in the way that he prepares his like promo and his website and his costume and his props like right just
1: uh, I took a lot from that, like when I first met Jim. No, he's very professional in that yeah. way, and, and much the same way I'm not. Like right, that's what guy, I mean. You guys yeah, are complete right. opposites. It's, yeah, very different. Someone like Reese Thomas, you know Reese Thomas? Nope. Just really professional. Like I was in a show and he was the MC, and I remember watching his method. Like he's got everything written down, and he's got everything. Like he doesn't leave anything to chance. And I do a lot of like sort of. Uh, it's pretty random. You know, like, yeah. I don't have a set. Like, that bit I did last night, right? I didn't know what I was going to do.
2: And, like, one thing that you days. never really do is, like, move your audience either.
1: Yeah, I don't do a lot of crowd control. And Jim right. used to be all about crowd Meticulous. control. Meticulous. Yeah, yeah, and I, it helps the show, I guess. I don't like people telling me what to do. Right. So I naturally don't want don't to tell people what to, do, that. That to yeah. do. And sometimes I don't really like a show where it's all about do this, like, clap and cheer and do this. Mm-hmm. And when I say yes, you say no. Or, I mean, I do some of that. I do a fair amount of pandering. Hype. but yeah it just doesn't come all that naturally to me and uh it's your style yeah well it's just i feel like your comedy's always been really different too right i know myself i'm really not acting i kind of wear my heart on my sleeve if i'm unhappy it's going to show and if i'm in a good mood i mean i think you guys can see when i'm smiling if i'm happy about something yeah um, yeah yeah.
2: no it's it's, it's pretty obvious yes it's it's right so um what's next for peter panic and how come you
1: don't do street anymore uh, well, I'm here in Grand Prairie, and I'm doing street. Weed. I, I guess yeah, you're doing ten the days festivals. Of, yeah, ten yeah. days of Edmonton, and, and enjoying it's fun. it. I did. I had a lot of fun, mainly because of the hang. Right, it's great company. Yeah, you got um, to share a room with John. Got to share <laughs> a room with John Higby, and you know he knows that I love him. Yeah. If I do jokes sometimes, he knows, and he's absolutely my hero as far as being really having a really positive energy on stage. Oh yeah. You also have a really positive energy. On stage. And we got to work with Hilby. Yeah. You know, what a great act. Yeah, it was definitely a good act. And Shelley Switzer does a great job with bringing in people that have good chemistry and and a good balance and all that. But, you know, I just stopped doing... I mean, Harvard Square just stopped being a viable scene. Right, it's not that good anymore. And Fanyol Hall, there was no real reason other than I wasn't... I didn't feel like I was making that much money and I wasn't having that much fun and it just became a pain in the ass dealing with the traffic and all the Also... My girlfriend Patricia worked down there, and when we went through a breakup, it wasn't like a particularly acrimonious or anything, but Mm. I just didn't even want to go down there. Right, see a store there, yeah. Yeah, and feel like a loser out there doing street shows. I just felt like I was getting enough legitimate work, Mm. and uh, so, you know, Keith Richards has a line or a song, he says, I'm going to walk before they make me run. In other words, walk away not get kicked out, not have a problem, not be... Nobody wants to be a bitter old street performer. Right. You know, so I was like, if I'm not having fun, and I can... There's no reason why I couldn't go back or do it again. I would want to change it if I did... Uh, yeah. You know, I think the shopping cart is not something I necessarily want to be associated with. Um, <laughs> I thought about doing, like, putting a rollerball on a table. Right. And people would be like, oh, gym you're going to yeah. do gym show? Yeah. Jim didn't invent that. I mean, right. A lot of people do that. I can do rollerball. I can do different things. I can...
2: Brady was doing that too when I first came there. Yeah. He was doing balancing the yeah and his table. Kept big.
1: Yeah, his table. He used to have a pretty small table, and he Get, put, getting taller and taller, putting longer legs on it, yeah. and everything else. And so, yeah, I mean, roller balls have been on the tables for a long time. I also can do rope walking, but I never did figure out a way to perform it. I found that's I need anchor points. I never wanted to do the thing where you have people hold the. The rope for you or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I'm a unicycle act. Problem with the unicycle, you can do it anywhere. Right. Um, Now the problem with the unicycle act is there's a million of us. Yeah. So what? You're juggling on a tall unicycle. Never seen that before. Right. Right. Um, But I do feel like by now I have my own unique thing. That just because I'm doing a trick that you've seen before, it's you've never. I do have a, a quality to where I'm not like other people. Right. It's not like a rip act, although I was influenced by a lot of different people along the way. Yeah, yeah. And it's been an honor to feel like I've influenced other people because I have had people yeah, definitely. say, you, there's a, a kid named Jeff Civilico who's right. got a show in Vegas, pretty successful show, like his own headline show as a juggler. Right. And he gives me credit. He gives me a shout-out, like on his Wikipedia page or whatever. He said he saw a street show in Harvard Square, Cambridge, oh, this cool. guy named Peter Panik. I apparently pulled him out. Yeah. He used him as a volunteer in the show. And I've talked to him on the phone and email and whatnot, and I said, look, man, it's not me. I bring a <laughs> lot of kids out there. all i end up being Jeff Sevilla. Yeah, yeah. you know, he was real successful on cruise ships, and now he's in Vegas. So, so, but I appreciate the way that he, that he remembers that, sort of like the way I remember the people who were nice to me or influenced me or, yeah, yeah. or, or believed in me. Because in the beginning, before it's true, you need someone to believe in it. Because yeah. if everyone just shakes their head, if everyone just goes, no, um, you, someone has to believe. And that's a lot of what Peter Pan is about. It's like fantasy or believing in things that may or may not be true. or It's just fun. It's just trying to have fun with it.
2: Yeah, cool. Uh, so anything you want to add before I ask my two final questions?
1: No, I'd like to say, you know, shout out to David Aiken. I think this is a good thing that he's doing. And uh, uh, yeah. we're all friends. I, I like being part of this community just because yeah. we are pretty supportive. There's sometimes egos and there's sometimes drama. But it's the generally, most part, it's, a, it's a worldwide family. It is a worldwide family, and we all, I think, have mutual respect for each other, and we all have funny stories to tell. That's one thing, like the Charlie story, that's what it comes from, is you do some shows, you go have a couple beers, and you start bullshitting about whatever funny story happened, um, and there's all these legendary stories, and so it's just fun. Nice.
2: All right, so what's your favorite beer?
1: Um, You know, I like them cold. I never went for Guinness. Right. But I don't like a really light. I like the stout. No, yeah, well, I don't mind like a stout or a porter or something, but just the Guinness. I even went to Ireland, and they said if you drink it in Ireland, it'll be different. But for whatever reason, it it wasn't that crazy... And uh, I never went for like. You go eight. down well in Ireland, man, with all that green. Oh, I know. Well, they went over there because for me, the green isn't so much about Ireland, but I was over there, and the Irish kids were teasing me, saying, What's your favorite color? Right. And, and I don't care. Oh, it by matter. the way, that's my last question. Right. No, you can't heckle me with that. It's like someone walking around like a clown getting offended if someone's laughing at them. It's like, right. You're dressed this way on purpose. Yeah, you know, yeah. you have a mirror, you know what you look like. So I really don't mind getting kids laughing. I, that's what a lot of my show is is getting kids to heckle me. Cool. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing better than. And having like a seven eight year old girl just giving me grief. Yeah, I just think it's hilarious. Uh, you good. know, it's like Wendy telling Peter Pan to shape up and fly right. I'm like, yeah. see if you can see if that's gonna work. <laughs> but yeah, my favorite color. Oh yeah, green. I don't even like green. I wear green because my boss makes me wear it. Right. Uh, but no, it's a fun color, and I think it's uh, like now it's seen as healthy or good for the environment. Like green mm-hmm. is a buzzword that's no, nobody right. has anything negative green to say living. about green. And I also love uh, I love a rainbow. And I think that's a wonderful symbol for certain communities that say it's very inclusive. Mm -hmm. If you want to be brown, you could be brown. If you want to be green, you could be red. All the colors are cool. I sometimes don't like that rainbow flag because the green is—it's not a vibrant. You don't like the green in the Uh, flag. Yeah, it's it's sort of like this dark forest green, and I'm like, no, man, do the vibrant, the neon, you know, the really Kelly green. (laughs) There's a lot of greens. How many greens are there? there, I've heard this, I don't know if it's true, that the human eye can see more shades of green than any other color. Wow. And that may have been from our ancestors. How many when... of those do I don't you know. own? I don't Do I own? Oh, yeah, I don't <laughs> differentiate. I go, actually, I use all the greens. But I like a nice Kelly green, like right. that emerald green. Right. The, the really good one. The one that is, if you see a proper rainbow, a good one, it's right there. It's this really beautiful green. Mm. I mean, a lot of people wear black. A lot of people, you know, have their costume. I mean, this was a funny story. One time with Patricia we're we're thrift store shopping up in like the North Shore somewhere right and we're in just some thrift store Salvation Army and there's some guy and he's all in purple I mean all in purple his shoes his pants his top I mean I think he might have been gay or he was whatever he's crazy and he was freaking me out and Patricia just started laughing at me going, don't you realize that's exactly how you look? I said, no, no, it's not, I'm not like that. Yeah. It's just, people don't But and it was really funny. She has a great sense of humor and she was, she was just teasing me over it going, yeah, that's pretty much how it looks. Yeah. I was like, no. Or people sometimes would, I mean, I like a lot of these jokes. They'd say you should get green contact lenses or dye your hair green right. or something. Like that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to look crazy. <laughs> and that gets a, laugh. Yeah. It gets a laugh. People are like, oh, really? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you do have a boundary. Oh, you know? uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up. All right. Peter Panic, Grand Prairie. Rucked it, buddy. Oh, yeah, that was
0: fun. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode is proudly sponsored by The Busking Project. The Busking Project is a not-for-profit social enterprise put together by Nick Broad and Lily Maz. They have buskers on staff and have created a community of street performers stretching to 662 cities all over the world. Busk, an all-new iPhone app, is being released as of December 4th. Use the app to get cashless payments from your audience, grow your social network, and become discoverable on a comprehensive busking map of the world. For more information about the Busking Project and their new app, please visit busk.co, B-U-S-K C-O. And huge thanks to Nick and Lily for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, Peter has one last story about an alter ego from earlier in his career that just never stuck.
1: I tried calling myself Sisyphus for a while. Sisyphus. Sisyphus. What's that? Sisyphus is a Greek myth about the guy who pushes a rock up the hill and it always comes rolling back down. Right. And he's right. eternally damned. And it's supposed to be really frustrating because he gets close but he never can accomplish the goal. He's yeah. always frustrated. And I think that's a great metaphor for juggling. Yeah. you throw it up, it always, it always comes, comes back, back down. I mean, yeah. what do you think is going to happen? It's not going to stay up there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what was your joke
2: the other night? It's juggling five balls is like. Having a snowball fight with God? Yeah!
1: <laughs> or a rock fight, or a knife fight. You can get that's to choose awesome. your weapons. But that's, that is, that's like you're playing catch with God. Right? right. And so, did you get any gigs with this name? No. How I long know, did it last? I tried it off and on, but people would just make fun of me and call me Syphilis. Uh, Or Sissy Face. Sometimes people that knew me back then, they'll still sort of remind me like I knew you when. Remember when you tried to be Sisyphus? And I joke about it, like, suppose I was Sisyphus. I'd be like wearing a black beret, smoking a clove cigarette, (laughs) you know, like wearing all in black. My name is Sisyphus, Z-Existential Clown.
0: On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Story Producer Magic Bryan, Al Miller, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. The Devil in Green Pants, that's me.